Um, well, welcome to Praxis. It's so good. Again, another week to be together, whether you're joining us online or here in person. What a blessing it is to be able to fellowship over God's word, to be a community of believers who gather around scriptures, not so that we can just merely inflate our heads with knowledge, but so that our lives can be transformed for our joy in Christ as well as for God's glory. Uh, I did want to bring to your attention, I'm sure uh, Steph will uh, underline these announcements, but again, if you could help us out by filling out that online survey, it does look like, just to kind of um, brief you guys, that we will be moving in the direction of holding Praxis indoors um, as soon as June, but we're working out the details. So if you have thoughts and comments, it would really serve us well if you filled out that online survey. Um, speaking of serving, uh, there are plenty of opportunities on Sunday. You know, if you're free uh, as things reopen up and uh, you have ample time on Sunday, one beneficial way we can build up the body of Christ is just laboring in uh, whatever needs there are that the church requires. And so uh, Steph will also plug that, but I just wanted to give my pastoral endorsement from the get-go. So uh, if you don't know me, my name is Alan. I am one of the pastors here at Lighthouse. Um, if you don't know me, I look forward to getting to know you. Um, but as a fellowship group, as a young adult ministry here in Praxis, we have been working our way through the book of Romans at a snail's pace, um, but not too slow compared to other preachers, so go us. Um, but we are in Romans, and today we're going to be tackling a particularly difficult passage, and it's going to require our full engagement because this can be very heady material uh, we're going to look at. But if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn in them to Romans chapter 3, and tonight we'll be studying verses 1 to 8. So I'll go ahead and read our passage for us. And then we will pray for the Lord's help upon our time. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. God, your word is true. And your word discloses to us that your word is profitable. That even tough passages like this is for the building up of the body, that we may be equipped, wholehearted in our devotion to Christ. And so give us the faculty to understand this, not only on an intellectual level, but Lord, that you would pierce and pierce our hearts and leave us undone 
that you might make us more like Christ, that we would cherish the gospel all the more because we see how heinous and wicked we are apart from you, that we are bankrupt in our sin. And so we desperately need your grace to quicken our hearts, to illumine our minds, to see this word as valuable, as good, as divine. And so teach us now. We pray that your spirit would be here to guide us, to show us Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for weeks, months, you know that the book of Romans has Paul dropping bombshell after bombshell. Now, these early chapters are scorched grounds. And to kind of give you a quick recap of all that we've covered, well, in chapter one, the apostle unloads, right? He underscores the depravity of humanity. That instead of worshiping our creator, we have exchanged the glory of immortal God for lesser things, for images, for bowing down before the idol of self. And Paul announces that God's wrath falls upon those who commit high treason, who remain darkened in their idolatry, that mankind is culpable before their maker. But Paul's audience, a section of them, would have thought themselves exempt from such indictment. The Jews, the gatekeepers, the guardians of God's law. They probably assumed, well, that's for the commoners. That judgment, that pronouncement is for other people, but we're special. We are the people of God. And so what does Paul do in chapter 2? He turns his attention to address them, to speak to them face to face. He reveals how they are just as guilty. And ironically, their pride is proof of their shame. Although privileged as the covenant people, the Israelites were not faithful and obedient. Though given the very law of God and all these religious customs to draw them, bring them closer into relationship with God, these Jews had misappropriated these gifts and traditions as a way to boast, as a way to flaunt themselves and their superiority that they were better than others. They missed the purpose of these rites and rituals. And this was epitomized for us last week in how the Jews had abused the ceremony of circumcision. They had placed too much value in this practice. They came up too short. Instead of looking through and seeing the significance of circumcision, they settled for the mere sign. But physical circumcision was always meant to be symbolic of a greater reality, a spiritual reality of the posture of their hearts. They were to be cut off from the world, set apart for God. And Paul rebukes the Jews for their arrogance by announcing that a true Jew is not one who is merely outwardly compliant when inwardly they're empty. No, a true Jew is one who is devoted from the inside out, who has circumcision not just of the flesh, but of the heart. And listen, this would not go over well with these pious religious people. These Jews would have been rattled, enraged, 
Paul has just put them in their place on level playing field with the rest of the world. They would have been outraged. But these stubborn Jews weren't going to go down without a fight. So what's their strategy? Poke holes in Paul's teaching. Discredit him. If they can do away with the apostle and his gospel, well, then they'll get to keep their crown. And so whether they actually vocalize a series of accusation or Paul beats them to the punch in our passage, the apostle in our section tonight answers popular objections that these Jews would have had. And I imagine these would have been matters that Paul wrestled with himself. After all, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Jew himself. But what we'll examine tonight is how Paul deliberated over these issues only to arrive at the truth. And the first dispute would be over whether the Jews really had a fair advantage. A fair advantage. If you're following along in our outline, this is our first point, a fair advantage. And this is unpacked for us beginning in verse 1. Look again. Paul says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? After going after them and dismantling their entire system for religiosity, for a works-based system, some of them might insinuate, okay, Paul, let's say for a moment we grant your point. Then do you know the ramifications of that? The nation of Israel, all of our history, our, all of our Jewish practices, they're essentially pointless. You follow the train of thought? They would argue if we're all equally condemned, Gentile and Jew alike, if it's all about the heart and boils down to faith in God, then doesn't this effectively render everything in the Old Testament as moot, as futile? What was the benefit of circumcision or being a Jew? Where's the advantage? Was it all just a sham? And their question is understandable. It's legitimate in light of the scathing rebuke Paul levied upon them in the previous passage. In fact, if we were following along at the end of chapter 2, we would assume we know the direction Paul's heading. We expect him to say absolutely nothing. There's no advantage. But much to our surprise, the apostle answers in the affirmative. Continues in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. You see, Paul gushes over how blessed these Jews were. They were given the oracles of God. Oracles of God, I know it sounds spooky and mystical, but the oracles refers to the sacred scriptures. This was their quintessential advantage that God himself spoke to these people. While other nations like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, they were left completely in the dark, God by his own volition personally revealed himself to the Jewish nation. He instructed them in the truth. He disclosed who he is, what he was doing, his plan of redemption. They had the word, the Old Testament, all 39 books of divine revelation. 
But being put in a position to succeed is not the same thing as succeeding. You know, the child of a professional athlete may have opportunity to pick his dad's brain on how to play football. He might be privileged to use the team facilities or get tips from the trainers. Maybe he even has access to game fill and the head coach's uh, playbook. But all these blessings do nothing to help him if this little boy decides, man, forget football. I'm going to go into ballet, right? No offense if you like ballet. I'm sure there's some overlap between football and ballet. But what does this illustrate? Well, advantages in and of themselves are never enough. You see, advantages are only advantages if you use them, if you capitalize on the opportunity, if you take them for your benefit. And we see it all the time in the church, right? One unbeliever grows up with godly parents. He experiences family devos on a daily basis. He attends youth group and hears hundreds of top-tier sermons. He even owns multiple copies, various versions of the Bible, ESV, NASB, NIV, even the good old KJV. He has it all. He's blessed. On the other hand, you have a guest who has no experience, absolutely no experience with Christianity or the church. But on a whim, for whatever reason, he decides to visit one Sunday. Now, aside from terrible movie adaptations, he's not familiar with any Bible story. He's never opened the Bible. He doesn't know who Chris Tomlin or John Piper are. Now, when these two unbelievers sit side by side next to each other in service, which person is more of a non-Christian? This is a trick question, right? They both are. But if I ask you, who has had the advantage? Well, the answer is clear as day. The first guy, the first unbeliever has been afforded so many opportunities, so much exposure to the word, so many chances to heed what he's heard, what he's read in the scriptures. He's had the inside track. And so the same with the Jews, with the Israelites. They had the very oracles of God. They held the blueprints of salvation in the palm of their hands. The Jews heard and read about God and what he was up to. But it was head, not heart. In the word, they had the fast pass. Just not a free pass. You see, no one could deny their advantage. And listen, here's the lesson for us. Advantages, they're not something to be despised, but rather embraced. And I, I know how it is at times. Sometimes we wish we were disadvantaged. Sometimes we can envy the testimonies of those who indulge in their flesh and pursued the world before becoming a Christian, as if there's something better or more glorious when you're steeped in sin before you're rescued from it. And praise God if that's your testimony. That's awesome. But praise God if he's spared you. If he's been kind to you so that you've been without heartbreak, pain, 
and the consequences of gratifying your flesh. Praise God if you grew up in the church, learned about Jesus at a young age, and you never did drugs. Salvation is always miraculous, whether you're redeemed from a rock and roll lifestyle or from a pharisaical attitude. We should never be ashamed of all the advantages God lavishes upon us. We should appreciate them and then use them as they're intended to incline our hearts to love and obey him all the more. This is relevant for all of us here, wherever you are in your walk. Whether this is day one or you're on lap 3000. And let me remind you of your biggest advantage. It's what you hold maybe on your laps or what you look up in your phones. Friends, is the Bible precious to you? Is this a read your Bible message? Yes, it is. You have been entrusted with the full word of God, not just the oracles, not just 39 books of the Old Testament. You have the complete canon. It is exhaustive. And that's why here at this church, at Praxis too, we are people of the book. Why we preach expositionally, even tackling difficult passages like this. Why we gather as the body of Christ to study and fellowship over the word. Because in the scriptures, we commune with the God who is not silent, but has personally spoken to each one of us. Now combine that with the manifold resources and the technology of our day. And can any of us deny our advantage? Just consider that. In a matter of seconds, you can download sermons from all sorts of preachers across the globe. You can use Bible software, a lot of it free, just to gain insight into a passage. You can pull up a million articles explaining a difficult text. You can Zoom with friends to pour over the scriptures and encourage, sharpen one another. All of this is made available to us, and often at a click of the mouse. Never. Never in the history of mankind have we been afforded such opportunities and benefits. What a time to be alive. But Praxis, have we utilized these advantages for our advantage? We of all people in all history, humanly speaking, should be the most rigorous students of the word, the most sacrificial servants of others, the hardiest followers of Christ, because we hear God loud and clear in the scriptures. Fine if the apostles' opponents, whether real or fictional, if they concede this point, they would come back firing with another objection, calling into question now the character of God. But Paul does a masterful job of establishing the faithfulness of God. And so our next point, we transition from a real, uh, a fair and real advantage to a faithful God, a faithful and righteous God. Our next verses focus on this in verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So they're saying, okay, Paul, 
let's just say, for the sake of argument, we agree with your assessment and admit the Jews might have messed up a little. They squandered their opportunity. They wasted their advantages. So does this also mean God will just abandon his people? If his people are faithless, will God break his covenant promises with them? Won't this show God to be unfaithful? How about that, Paul? But this is misguided because God's commitment to his people has never been absolutely unconditioned. The Jews weren't given a blank check to do whatever they wanted without any repercussions. I mean, that's why you had the law, because it told you what was inbounds and out of bounds. It could be broken. Just trace how the Israelites fared when they disobeyed God's command. They were judged. They were punished. Yes, God vowed not to ultimately forsake his people, but he also vowed to punish them if they went astray. And you search the Old Testament, you stumble upon these lengthy passages on blessings and curses. And in fact, the sections on curses for disobedience in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are much longer than the sections on blessing. You know why? Because Moses knew. He knew the wayward nature and the sinful bent of the Jewish heart. You see the mistake of this charge? Paul's opponents are equating judgment with abandonment, punishment as evidence of God's faithlessness. They're being too reductionistic by assuming discipline means desertion. Much like our society's cancel culture today, quick to write off anyone who doesn't approve as what? Hateful. But it's all too simplistic. To illustrate, my commitment to my kids' well-being doesn't mean that they're given free reign, right? Uh, they don't have full license to gorge themselves on candy and smash things in the house or uh, snap back at me in anger. No, my responsibility is, as a father is to teach them that there are consequences for their actions, to correct them precisely because I want to see them thrive in life, to learn a better way. In reality. If I allow them to run amok and continue in evil, that's when I would be a terrible father, an unfaithful father. That would be the truest form of abandonment. But I don't care enough to respond or act. But you see, my faithfulness as a father is demonstrated exactly when I instruct and admonish them away from making shipwreck of their lives. God's judgment, therefore, doesn't undermine his faithfulness. Quite the opposite. It actually upholds it. When God punishes his people, he reveals that he is faithful. He is faithful to his character as a righteous God. He is faithful to his word that he won't turn a blind eye to sin. He is faithful to his people, caring enough to discipline them. See the connection? Did the Jews' faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Friends, that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul answers in the strongest adversative. This is the most emphatic form of negation in the Greek. Megenata, verse 4. By no means, by no means, 
Let God be true, though everyone was a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. To stress his point, Paul pits God against the world. If there's a disagreement on who's telling the truth, on who's right or wrong, Paul says, I'm going with God 100% of the time. Even if the entire human population is lined up on the other side, God will still be true. Now, as a brief aside for application, let me just ask, is this our default setting? Is this our starting point? Do you fall back on your theology, a robust foundation to interpret everything else? Because that's the kind of conviction Paul has. And that's the kind of conviction we need in our trials. In seasons where we don't understand how it all works. That in moments of confusion, doubt, distress, and hardships, though everyone else may be ready to accuse and blame God, you know what is true. Or more accurately, you know who is true. And this isn't blind faith or naivete, it accords with scripture and the integrity of God himself, which is how Paul backs his claim in the rest of verse four. He quotes an Old Testament passage, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So to slam the door on this objection, Paul reminds the Jews of their hero, David. There are many highlights in David's life, you know, slaying Goliath with a slingshot is pretty cool. Sparing Saul's life a number of times. Ascending the throne from shepherd boy to king over Israel. But one blemish, I think you know what it is, dirties his stellar reputation. His sin with Bathsheba. You remember the account? David spots Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. And even after being informed and told that she is the wife of Uriah, he sends for her. He has messengers bring her to him so that he can sleep with her. And Bathsheba becomes pregnant with David's child. But instead of coming clean, he digs in deeper. David schemes to have Uriah killed. He instructs Joab, the leader of his army, that when they are in the thick of things, in the heat of the battle, pull back, retreat, so that Uriah is left on his own to be defeated and killed by the enemy. And David, the most powerful, revered man in all of Israel, he sighs a sigh of relief. He believes he's gotten away with it. Adultery, conspiracy, lying, murder. He's scot-free until Nathan the prophet comes along. Look, you don't have to be a genius, but when a prophet randomly shows up to tell you some random story, it's probably not a good thing. And Nathan the prophet shares a parable, a seemingly innocent parable, about a rich man who has a guest, and so he wants to be a good host, so he prepares this extravagant meal. What's on the menu? Well, sheep. But instead of taking one sheep from his vast flock, he goes to this poor man 
who only has this precious little lamb, and he steals, he plucks this beloved sheep from this poor man and robs the poor man. And David is incensed. He shouts, that man should be put to death. And without skipping a beat, Nathan the prophet declares, David, you are the man. Not in a good compliment way, but you are the bad man. And David is undone. His guilt has been uncovered. His sin discovered, but he owns up to it. You see, convicted, cut to the core in his humiliation, David pens Psalm 51 as a confession, as a prayer of repentance. And Nathan informs David the penalty for his sin will be the death of his child and that the sword will not depart from his household. And that's exactly what unfolds in the rest of 2 Samuel. And yet David doesn't cry out, unfair, unjust, unfaithful. No, this is what he writes in Psalm 51.4, the verse that Paul quotes here in our passage. And David pens, against you, God, only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you might be justified in your words, prevail and you are judged. And David acknowledges God always does what is right. God is always true. God is faithful even when we are faithless. And if the Boy Scout of Israel, if the poster child of Jewishness, if the king of God's covenant people affirms God just in his judgment, what allegation can we possibly make? Straight from their storied past, Paul provides an example of how the unfaithfulness of God's people does not nullify God's covenant faithfulness. He is true even when their adored king of the nation is a liar, killer, and cheat. That God is righteous and faithful even when he punishes. And listen, more than finding that offensive, it ought to comfort us. Do you feel the warm blanket of his character? Do you feel the security of this safety net. That God is faithful. Whatever sin or suffering you encounter, whether you're fickle or not, you can be confident that God is righteous, that he's true to character. Even if your sin is exposed or your unfaithfulness found out, God stays true to use it, even your pain, as painful as it may be, for your eternal good and for his glory. And that brings us to our last point. In this final section, Paul seems to go on the offense and he lays into his opponents. They've contested with him about fair and real advantages, the faithfulness and righteousness of God. Here, Paul appears to turn the table and expose their defective, perverse way of thinking. Our last point is a faulty logic. A faulty logic. We see this beginning in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. You get the gist of their rationale. And they're saying, all right, fine. 
if we admit God's still faithful when we're faithless, then shouldn't we just continue to be unfaithful? After all, without us, God wouldn't have the opportunity to demonstrate how awesome, righteous, and faithful he is. In fact, he should really thank us instead of punish us. What do you say to that, Paul? And this line of reasoning is so audacious, so wild, so diabolical, Paul has to kind of distance himself from it. That's why you see that parenthetical statement at the end of verse 5. It's essentially saying, look, this ain't me. I'm just speaking for you, for the natural man as a human being trying to worm their ways out before God. And he's so embarrassed of introducing such a thought, he has to make it clear. This is not my personal conviction. And we get it, right? You read these verses and it is patently, blatantly twisted. I mean, apply to any other relationship and we see how ridiculous it sounds. It'd be like if I told you how I made a huge blunder and yet my wife was so gracious to overlook my big mistake. And maybe you even remarked and said, wow, your wife, Bear, she sure is forgiving. To which I agreed, and then I said, yeah, but aren't I great for letting her? <laughs> you know, if, if you heard me say that, if, if you ever hear me say that, I give you full permission to come up to me and slap me, right? That's craziness. My conclusion is backwards. The opposite of where I should land. I should not be pleased with myself. I should be embarrassed. Or how about this? What if Judas try to steal Jesus' spotlight. You know, imagine if he tried to pitch to you why he's the true hero of God's plan of salvation. And he went into this long spiel about how, well, you know, without my betrayal, Jesus wouldn't have died and you would remain condemned in your sin. So instead of hating on me, you should be thanking me. You know, you're welcome. That's idiotic, right? Sure, though, Jesus and Judas... They both play a part in the same magnificent story. We all know only one is praiseworthy. They'll both contribute to the narrative, to the drama. One is the hero and the other is a villain. How do you differentiate the two? By what they actually do. It's that simple. And without this distinction, without this standard, there would be no grounds for God's judgment. The adulterer could just claim, well, God, my adultery only helped you highlight the power of your grace. The con artist can maintain, well, my schemes only serve to show how you are faithful to provide for those I've swindled. Judas himself could insist, well, my betrayal only advanced your glory in salvation. So you're unrighteous if you inflict wrath on me. You should instead give me a gift card. But Paul can't stomach this kind of folly. He says again in verse 6, By no means, for then how would God judge the world? Again, the presumption and lunacy of this kind of thinking should be obvious to us. And Paul repeats his rejection emphatically, the same response he gave in verse 4, By no means. Why? Because if it doesn't matter, whether we are righteous or unrighteous in our deeds, then on what basis is God going to judge the world? What's Paul doing here? It's very uh, witty, 
very clever. What he's doing is he's working backwards to show his opponents how backwards they are. And so he starts at the end, judgment day. You see, back then, every self-respecting person, especially the Jews, knew that there would be a final reckoning. That a day was coming where God would judge. It was a universal accepted truth. But adopt these opponents' position, their terms, their objection, this kind of fallacious reasoning where everyone deserves a pat on the back. And it contradicts how they believe God would call everyone to account. And the apostle here reveals their inconsistency, the error of their logic. You know what we call this? We call this grasping for straws. That you're so desperate, you're no longer making sense. And you know it. Just continue by reading on in verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's because you sin, right? That the ends don't justify the means. Track along with me. The reason we're condemned as a sinner is because we sin. We are culpable of the crime because we commit the crime. And judgment must follow. God doesn't cast sin into hell. God casts unrepentant sinners into hell. And here we reach the conclusion in verse 8. And why not do evil that good, that God's glory may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so this whole line of thinking is so irrational, it doesn't merit a rebuttal. Paul doesn't entertain the argument with a thorough, lengthy explanation. He states it rather plainly. Their condemnation is just. It's almost as if he's telling such people to wake up and listen to themselves, to rewind the tape and play it back, to look in the mirror. When your mentality is so distorted, when you are promoting evil and dismissing good, well, then your guilt should be self-evident. You're digging yourself deeper into the grave because you are exhibit A of all that Paul has unraveled in the first two chapters of Romans. You are the very evidence of the depravity and condemnation he speaks about. And this is convicting because, look, we're not off the hook. Aren't we just as stubborn, just as creative? We try every rhyme and reason to escape our guilt. Blame shift is our go-to move, even if it's directed at God. Our fingers are always pointing outside of us, anywhere beside of us. And if that doesn't work, we come up with some all sorts of fanciful, far-fetched explanation to dismiss or diminish our sin. Well, everyone struggles with pornography. Everyone cheats on their taxes. That person failed to keep their end of the bargain or they're really annoying. So that's why I blew up in anger. We'll pass the buck whenever we can. But eventually, all of our crafty inventions come back to bite us in the butt because we talk ourselves guilty. The rock bottom of our craziness, we even try to pin it on God. I'm sure you've heard the argument. Maybe you made it yourself, 
I mean, to my shame, I think this was me when I was not a Christian, you know, and, and I was confronted with this, with this theology that God is sovereign over everything. And I remember, I'm sure like many of you, uh, we bantered, well, if God is sovereign, then he's responsible for my sin. There, I, I, I won the debate. But that's just us throwing a childish fit. And the apostle Paul, he will deal with this reasoning in detail later on in chapters 9 to 11. But for now, his sweeping statement should be enough to cause us to just shut our mouths and really examine the truth. Do we really believe that this kind of logic will hold up in divine courts, let alone in human courts? Then recognize the folly of trying to squirm out of your guilt and own it. If you've been robbed of any excuse, maybe that is God's grace to you to prompt and lead you to repentance and confession, just like King David. But God is going to get his glory one way or the other. But do you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus or Judas? You want to be glory, glorified with God and not apart from him. I understand this has been a difficult passage. But nevertheless, I hope it encourages you. Because it points you to the wisdom of God and our need of Christ. The opening sections of Romans can be a bit of a downer. But they show us the depths of our sin. They, they certainly communicate the ugliness of uh, our hearts, but all the more, it causes us to marvel at the depths of our salvation, how robust our faith is, that there is an answer to all the skeptics and critics, that the complexity of our faith reveals the, the gravity and the glory of God. Our sin, depravity, condemnation, yes, it's all very serious, very real but it prepares us to behold how rich, magnificent, and wonderful the gospel message is. Let's pray. God, you are not one to be trifled with. You are a holy, righteous, faithful God, a God who is both wise and compassionate, a God who is patient and yet just and angry. And because of that, we can entrust ourselves to you. We can throw ourselves upon your mercy, knowing that you will be faithful to your promises, faithful to your word, faithful to those who are faithful to you, who hold fast to Christ. So Lord, I pray that we would be able to examine and scrutinize not you, but our own hearts to see all the advantages you have given to us, that we might steward them well and foster a deeper appreciation of the gospel, greater fervor to follow after Christ. Father, that we might see uh, our tendencies to defend ourselves instead of admitting our need, our desperate need of Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd recalibrate our minds and reorient our hearts, that we'd be supple and humble before you, to be those that desire to submit to your authority, not just because it's right, but also because it's good. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.